Support for Petri Dish Podcast comes from Pay It Forward. Clean and sober living, providing supportive sober living for previously homeless, newly recovering individuals, allowing them to achieve self-sufficiency and create meaningful, productive lives. More at payitforwardsa.org. That's a TV playing in the background of what, at first glance, looks like a typical lobby in a typical medical clinic. Flyers tacked onto the walls remind people to wear a mask and maintain their distance. It all feels pretty unremarkable. But within these walls, something extraordinary is happening. There are other flyers, a glossy white paper with small blue and green lettering for a new medical trial, a potential COVID-19 vaccine. Texas Public Radio reporter Maria Mendez waits in this lobby in McAllen, where workers and scrubs come and go with things like a vitals cart. Maria is here to talk with Shruti Kanda, Chief Operations Officer at Centex Studies, a clinical research company. Right in this place, Centex is conducting vaccine trials for Moderna. Moderna is in the news a lot these days. It's the U.S. pharmaceutical company leading the race for a COVID-19 vaccine. The world is waiting for it. Centex is at the center of it. Shruti shows Maria around the facility, which has lots of different specialized rooms. We draw blood samples, um, immunogenicity samples for, for the vaccine trial. So he's the only one that knows whether a patient's getting placebo or the vaccine. So, and he has nothing to do with any of the patients. He doesn't have any interactions. So we keep this part in here and then we hand over, he hands over the syringe to um, the nurse who will vaccinate them. Moderna is sending them vaccine doses and they're testing them on volunteers from McAllen. Shruti says they've been doing drug trials in McAllen since 2017, but this is their first vaccine trial. We heard from the pharma companies that were looking for sites and our business development team reached out to them and uh, we did a qualification visit where they come out and they make sure we have everything we need uh, to run the trial because it's, it's a big trial. For this study, the target is 30,000 participants from across the U.S. That is a big study. And Moderna picked roughly 89 trial sites across the country. But this site in McAllen has a very special participant pool. The border city is 85% Latino. Um, so we've had a, a, a variety of patients that, um, that come from like different strata and have different health conditions. Some of them are healthy. Some of them have underlying conditions but are stable. So we've had a combination of all of that. From Texas Public Radio, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie, and today, the COVID-19 vaccine inside America's race for an answer. America is desperate for a COVID vaccine. Our lives and our livelihoods are counting on it. And so it's full speed ahead, warp speed. You might even call it a rat race. Someone opens a cage inside some hungry mice. It's time for a snack. 
Mice, as you might suspect, now have a key role in the search for a COVID vaccine as researchers seek safe and effective treatments at a vaccine the mice are a step in the process. Texas Biomedical Research Institute vaccine scientist Dr. Joanne Turner is one of the leaders of the team that discovered mice are a good animal model for testing treatments and vaccines for this coronavirus. But these are not your ordinary mice. So um, the mice that we're using to test for COVID um, are regular mice that have been genetically engineered to have um the expression of a, a receptor, a human receptor. Genetically modified mice. So a normal lab mouse will not get sick from SARS-CoV-2. But as soon as you have a mouse that expresses the human ACE2 protein, uh, they get incredibly sick and they usually can't live for more than one or two weeks. They have virus everywhere and a lot of really bad symptoms, which replicates really sick humans. Similar to other viruses, what it causes the, the people to die from infection is not the virus itself, it's the, let's say, the immune reaction that you get to the viral infection from your own organism. Dr. Luis Martinez-Obrido is another leader of the Texas Biomed team working with these transgenic mice. He explains that, like some humans, these mice experience cytokine storms in response to the COVID virus. Cytokine storms are an uncontrolled immune system response to a pathogen the immune system doesn't recognize. And that's what we found previously, for instance, with the 1918 influenza that killed 50 million people worldwide. It was not a different virus than any other influenza. It was just the ability of causing this uncontrolled cytokine storm was what it makes the, the symptoms and the lethality of the virus so high. Now that the biomed team has figured out these mice get sick with COVID in much the same way humans do, they can get to work. But if COVID vaccines are already being tested in humans in the United States, why do you need an animal model at all? Well, because the, the, the idea of going and testing vaccines directly in human without uh, previous um, safety and efficacy studies in, a, in an animal model is completely unprecedented. It never happened before. It's the first time that happened and quite understandable based on you know, the pandemic of the virus. Sure. But Martínez Sobrido says that means they had to be very careful with these first vaccine candidates. I mean, uh, the, the vaccines that they move to human cl uh, clinical trials, they have a very strong safety profile. And we knew that they are vaccines that they are not going to cause any, any side effect on humans. So they were pretty safe. The same is true of the COVID treatments they've been using in human trials, like remdesivir and dexamethasone. They've already been tested in humans and have a known safety profile. Now, though, thanks to our little mice friends, researchers could try a lot more options. So having an animal model where we can test uh, multiple vaccines or we can test multiple drugs that can control viral infection, I think that is going to be a breakthrough. And a breakthrough is exactly what we need. So most of us have gotten all of our vaccines and we know they work because we haven't had a polio quarantine for well over a half century. But have you ever wondered why they work? Well, they work by tricking your immune system. Back to Dr. Turner now. 
So they're a fake infection in its most simple terms. Uh, normally when we're infected, the virus or bacteria would infect cells, it would cause damage, uh, it would replicate, um, it would switch on immune responses to try and clear it. And so we're really faking that with a vaccine. In addition to her work at Texas Biomed, Turner is the executive director of the Vaccine Development Center of San Antonio. So vaccines teach our immune systems to fight a particular infection by tricking it into thinking they've already dealt with it. The secret to all of this is the imposter, the pretender pathogen, the substance that makes your immune system think it's infected when it's not. What is this imposter made of? It's either something like a dead virus that obviously can't cause any harm or a piece of a virus that can't cause any harm. Um, or it's something completely synthetic that we've created to just mimic a, a signal. And so none of that would grow in our bodies and cause something, a, a dangerous reaction or cause infection. So you get the immunity without having to suffer through and maybe die from a disease. So who figured out you could do this? Well, it's story time, my friends. Sit back, relax, and I'll tell you a scary story about another deadly virus that could decimate families and entire communities. It was the variola virus. It caused smallpox. Now, no one could say for sure how long the variola virus has been around. There are hints of it in writings from ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, and the Roman Empire. It was certainly in China in the 4th century and had spread further into Europe by the 6th century. And the variola virus is a killer. Back then, around one out of four people who developed smallpox died. When Europeans brought smallpox to the Americas, the impact was even more devastating because the indigenous people of the Americas had no natural immunity to the variola virus, experts estimate it may have killed 90% of the population. Smallpox was a scourge. Various cultures experimented with inoculations against smallpox called variolation. In China, people would try to inoculate themselves by inhaling powder made from the crusts of smallpox scabs, which is gross, but did offer some protection. People in Africa also practiced a form of inoculation, and that may have saved many people in Boston in the 1700s. That's when an enslaved man named Onesimus, who'd been sold in 1706 to Cotton Mather. Now, if that name sounds familiar, he was a Puritan minister who was a featured player in the Salem witch trials. But after all of that went down, he was living in Boston. So Onesimus shared this technique with Mather. And in 1721, there was a smallpox epidemic in Boston. And a doctor friend of Mather's used Onesimus's technique on those in his household and as many Bostonians as would let him. Of those who weren't inoculated against smallpox during that outbreak in Boston, one in seven people died. Of those inoculated, one in 40 died. 14% of Boston's population died in that outbreak of smallpox, but many more certainly would have if it hadn't been for Onesimus. Dr. Turner says Europeans also tried their hands at smallpox inoculation. It had been around unofficially since way back in uh, about the 1500s, where people were taking scabs 
from someone that had smallpox and essentially just scratching them into their own skin with the hope that they would get protection, which, of course, some did. And some may have caught the infection. So not always effective in that way. Yes. So this type of inoculation was pretty risky. While it did protect some, it killed others. Um, But what happened in the 1700s was a scientist called Edward Jenner realized after talking with milkmaids that they were quite immune from getting smallpox. Well, that definitely caught the scientists' attention. So back in the day, large farms would hire women milkmaids to milk the cows and, you know, make things like butter and cheese. So why did so many milkmaids seem to be immune to smallpox? So cowpox and smallpox are very, very similar. They have common proteins. And so when these milkmaids got cowpox, which wasn't really dangerous to them, their immune response generated enough memory that when they saw smallpox, they could react against those same common proteins and then clear the infection quicker. Jenner thought maybe exposing people to cowpox might be the key to safely creating immunity against smallpox. So he did something that we would never be allowed to do today, pandemic notwithstanding, and thank goodness. Which was vaccinating an eight-year-old boy. His name was James Phipps. And he gave him a vaccine with cowpox. And then he went back and challenged him with smallpox. So he purposefully infected him with smallpox multiple times. And this boy was protected. Oh, little James, what were your parents thinking? Why would they allow that? Because they had a really high risk of getting smallpox and dying from smallpox then. And so they may as well try something that could help protect them. Well, little James didn't die. He didn't even get sick. And because of him, Jenner created the first ever vaccine, the smallpox vaccine. And in the 1800s, it was given to a lot of people. uh, Very, very successful. Um, And then around the 1980s, they declared smallpox eradicated because it had been such a successful vaccine. So the smallpox vaccine worked the same way vaccines do today. It introduced a person's immune system to an imposter, in this case, a virus, the one that causes cowpox, to teach the immune system how to fight the deadly virus that caused smallpox. The cowpox virus was similar enough to the smallpox virus that it tricked the immune system into thinking the person had already gotten smallpox, so they couldn't get it again. Pretty cool, right? But turns out the smallpox vaccine is pretty low-hanging fruit in the vaccine world. Because smallpox is kind of a simple virus. It doesn't mutate quickly, uh, which we see with HIV and SARS-CoV-2. And that allowed us to vaccinate with something very simple. And then the reaction was really straightforward because the virus didn't change in any way. The COVID virus is not like that. It's more complicated. And that's one of the reasons, despite hundreds of years of collective experience developing vaccines and every scientist on Earth working on this, they just can't, you know, go in the back room and whip one up. Even at warp speed, it takes a minute to develop a vaccine. All right. It's already recording. Okay, great. At the top of the show, we heard from Maria Mendez. She's been tracking clinical trials as companies work to create a vaccine and get it approved. Maria will take it from here. So I spoke with Alberto Castilleja. He's 23 and he's a finance student in Dallas, Texas. 
but he has family in Laredo, so when the pandemic hit, he decided to move back in. You know, I've been keeping up with the news since, I would say, April. Um, so yeah, I've been aware of the, I would say, 17-plus vaccine trials that are happening right now. So when a COVID vaccine trial was announced in Laredo, Alberto decided he wanted to volunteer. Well, they were just looking for people who work at, you know, exposed environments or are at high risk. And there was, I would say, a checklist of four criteria to be met in order to participate, but the process didn't take more than two minutes long. They're basically looking for people who may have been exposed while at their jobs or people who live in a hotspot like Laredo. They, they called me two weeks ago saying that it's still happening just to be patient. Uh, but so far, I haven't heard back from them. I've Alberto wants to participate, but he's concerned that the trials may take advantage of a vulnerable community. So there's always that distrust, um, especially when there's cases like the 1976, um, you know, swine flu vaccination program that a lot of individuals got sick due to a vaccine trail. So there's always certain things that the government or medical institutions have done that target people of color in ways that impact us negatively. Laredo has its own dark history with vaccines, the 1899 smallpox riot. But usually this place would be bustling with students and it's kind of it's weird. It's almost like a ghost town. That's Jerry Thompson. He wrote about the riot in his book, Laredo, A Pictorial History. Well, I was somewhat uh, shocked because I really didn't realize that that smallpox epidemic was as deadly as it really was. It evidently spread out of northern Mexico, I think along the railroad from, from Monterrey to Nuevo Laredo and then across the river in, into Laredo. Poor and communities were especially affected and many children were dying, so officials wanted to stop the spread. And what happened was it, it got so out of hand and so many people were dying that they decided to issue a quarantine. And then they went beyond that, where uh, the mayor was forced to ask for help from the governor. And back then in South Texas, anytime there was trouble, the governors would always send in the, the famous, the infamous Texas Rangers. on those Texas Rangers, famous to some, infamous to others. Mass media has portrayed them as bringing law and order to a lawless land as civilization reached uncivilized areas. Indian companion Tuttle, the masked rider of the plains, led the fight for law and order in the early western United States. The stories of his strength and courage, his daring and resourcefulness have come down to us through the generations. And nowhere in the This is from a popular radio series, The Lone Ranger. This episode broadcast in 1942. The series aired for nearly a decade and skipped over a lot of history. As I walked out on the streets of Laredo, as I walked out on Laredo... Now back to 1899 in Laredo, there's a smallpox outbreak. Governor Joseph D. Sayers sends in the Texas Rangers. And so what they began doing was demanding that everyone become vaccinated. And there was a... Uh, kind of a radical, outspoken, very literate uh, editor of a Spanish newspaper by the name of Justo Cardenas. 
And he put out a pamphlet, a flyer, basically urging people to resist. And that's exactly what happened. The people began resisting. So the rangers and local police marked sick people's homes with yellow flags, and people were taken from their homes to a huge, quote, pest house, which was basically an abandoned rawhide warehouse north of downtown Laredo, where people who were sick or suspected to be sick were crammed. And there was a couple of uh, deadly gun battles between rangers and mostly the poor people of Laredo. Get six jolly cowboys to carry my coffin. Six dance all maidens to bear. The showdown in March of 1899 left 13 wounded and at least one dead, and it also led to the arrest of 21 people. More rangers and black soldiers from the nearby Fort McIntosh were brought in to stop the riots and outbreak. The outbreak lasted roughly eight months and highlighted the troubling history of inequality. What happened was they would allow the wealthy people to stay in their homes, although they had smallpox, providing they would hire a private uh, security guard. Whereas the poor people couldn't do that, so they were actually going in and dragging them out. Thompson says there are still similar concerns these days. And there is that anti-vaccine movement that is out there today. And some studies indicate that if we have a miracle vaccine tomorrow, as many as one out of four, roughly 25% of the American populace have no intention of getting the vaccine. We're answerable to regulatory bodies and we take it very seriously. Uh, That's Shruti Konda, the chief operations officer for Centex Studies. She's at their clinical site in McAllen, where COVID-19 vaccine trials are taking place. We have the ethics board, which is the institutional review board. They're responsible for patient safety and um, maintaining pa and keeping our, making sure the patient's rights are not violated in any way. Uh, and then there's FDA that, uh, that regulates all of this. Um, After Shruti screens patients over the phone, if they qualify, the physician assistant, Wesley Keaton, screens them in person. So when they get to phase three trials, those are basically the trials to see if the drug works and how long does it work for. So that means they already know it's safe. Um, they've already used it on humans in smaller groups, and they know that there's hardly any side effects or very mild side effects. So. And once a person is enrolled in the study, they're closely monitored for any potential side effects. Shruti says trial participants also get a $90 stipend for each visit. So that's our observation room, and this is where the patients get vaccinated for the COVID trials, and we, um, we observe them for like 30 minutes to make sure they're, they're okay and don't have any reactions, so we have a nurse. They've already enrolled more than 100 patients, and according to Centex, nobody has had any adverse reactions. We have, we have plenty of medical staff to like monitor them, and they don't leave the room till the patient is, um, is done. The safety of the vaccine isn't the only concern people have. In Laredo, 29% of the population is uninsured, and in McAllen, it's 26%, according to census data from 2018. Uninsured rates are high in this area, and there is a large immigrant population that doesn't qualify for many governmental assistance programs that a lot of citizens are relying on right now. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Chairwoman Deget. At a congressional hearing in July, Moderna said it planned to profit off the vaccine, which has already received federal funding. For the uh, companies uh, receiving taxpayer funding for your vaccines, 
have any of your contracts or agreements with the federal government included provisions to ensure affordability uh, in pricing or vaccines uh, and affordable pricing of vaccines or treatments? Uh, let me start again with Dr. Ho. Uh, no, they don't. We don't have a supply agreement with the U.S. government. So it got taxpayer money and will charge taxpayers a second time when the vaccine becomes available. So that could mean taxpayers here in border communities that are helping test this new vaccine could potentially not have access because of a high price. But Congress passed legislation ensuring that everyone will have access to the vaccine. We provided to them almost $2 billion of taxpayers' dollars. That's Texas Congressman Henry Cuellar. The key is going to be the production and the distribution. Uh, nevertheless, uh, under the circumstances, uh, there is a law that says that all Americans will have access. So even, I mean, if somebody has insurance, that's one thing. But if somebody doesn't have insurance, uh, there would not be a hurdle uh, to get a vaccine. Details of that plan have not yet been ironed out, but Congress has continued working with Moderna. And they just agreed to a 1.5, a little bit over $1.5 billion to provide 100 million doses. If this vaccine turns out to be safe and effective, federal government may have to pick up the tab for those who can't afford it, even though taxpayers have helped fund Moderna. Now, Moderna isn't the only company working on a vaccine. Centex in McAllen is starting vaccine trials with another company, AstraZeneca, soon. AstraZeneca did promise to price their vaccine at no profit. Moderna has not responded to our request for comment, but its CEO has said it will work out lower pricing for large orders and will, quote, be responsible on price. But its vaccine is still the most expensive one from all the contenders. All right, so say we finally have a vaccine and it's on the market. Initially, supply is guaranteed to be limited. So who should get the vaccine first? Basically, everybody agrees that the essential workers should get the vaccines first. The healthcare workers, the people on the front line, maybe the firefighters, national security. That's S. Matthew Lau. He's a bioethicist and the director of the Center for Bioethics at NYU. Uh, and then beyond that, there's sort of debates about who then should get it, like how you should sort of prioritize who should get the vaccines. So should we prioritize vaccinating people who are most at risk, like elderly people or maybe cancer patients or maybe other people who are immunocompromised? Another consideration is whether maybe you should give it to people who are in areas that have like the largest outbreaks. So it's kind of like putting out a fire. And so you want to sort of try to reduce super spreading events. So maybe, for example, schools, uh, factories, poorer communities or prisons. 
even if we prioritize people, there could be loopholes for others to get the vaccine. We saw something similar happen with COVID testing kits. While it was difficult for most of us to get tested in March and April, we heard about celebrities and even NBA players getting tested left and right. So I'm worried that the rich will be able to jump the queue, so to speak, when the vaccines come out and they're going to be able to buy access to vaccines, to the latest vaccines. So some of these wealthy people, they might not be at risk at all. They might not be in that group. And we, when you have very limited resources, at least in the initially, you really want to try to do most good with that, right? Because it could mean life or death for certain population. And so we really want to try to use that pr- appropriately. The situation could also create a black market. From ventilators, to hospital beds, to COVID testing kits, to PPE, personal protective equipment, we've seen scarcity of medical supplies all throughout the pandemic. So the reason that there was a shortage of PPE in the United States is not that there were not enough physical items available. This is Evan McMullen. She's the head of professional services at Consensus, which is a blockchain company. So normally Evan's job is to talk about blockchain and teach companies how it works and how they can use it for their business. But during the beginning of the pandemic, Evan took on another role, PPE Ferry. My partner is an emergency medicine physician. And so at the beginning of the pandemic, when there started to be shortages of personal protective equipment and other medical equipment, I was concerned that his physical safety was at risk if I did not get my hands on some masks. Evan used her contacts and connections to help hospitals across the country and the world get PPE directly from manufacturers. Now, normally hospitals buy their supplies from approved vendors. That usually requires review by a committee, the fulfillment of some pretty extensive forms, uh, you know, financial review, some kind of contractual agreement. These regulations are set in place so they know they're buying supplies from a reputable, legitimate source. But when the pandemic hit, hospitals had to go directly to the source, the manufacturers. And getting manufacturers to fit into the old system posed a bit of a challenge. For Chinese manufacturers, that level of scrutiny has never, ever been applied to them. And quite frankly, they're not likely to succumb to those kinds of requests when parties from Russia, from Ghana, from you know Germany are showing up in China with suitcases, duffel bags full of cash, cold hard cash for masks. We could be running into the same problems. If another country develops a COVID vaccine first, however, if the U.S. develops the vaccine and follows the priority list, there will be a whole different set of issues. You need a system to successfully and sort of verifiably and accurately identify human beings, verify when they come into a physical space that they are who they are purported to be, meaning that they qualify for some prioritized status, such as being a healthcare worker, being a member of um, an at-risk community. And then once a person receives the vaccine, it needs there, there needs to be documentation that that specific dose of vaccine went to that specific individual. And that individual now needs to have some credential or some you know evidence that they have received said vaccine. The problem, of course, is that the second that you start to 
digitally centralize a repository of data to include a list of who's in and who's out, that list becomes very vulnerable. You need to construct that list in a way that is invincible. Eva definitely sees a scenario where this could happen. She's seen similar scenes play out with PPE, but creating a, quote, list of people sounds a bit problematic for a lot of reasons. For privacy reasons, people would be concerned about how that information is used, who has access to that information. What about hackers? One way to create a tamper-proof list could be blockchain, Evan says. Blockchain network data is extremely difficult to hack because the network uses thousands and even potentially millions of computers to work together. Evan is an expert here because, remember, she works at a blockchain company. So they would first have to find all of those random computers operating in people's like houses and offices, random, you know, cloud settings, whatever, find those computers all over the planet and then simultaneously interfere with all of them at the exact same moment using more computing power than exists on planet Earth today. While you might think, why go to all this trouble if people getting vaccines for the black market are still getting vaccinated, right? Well, because it's all about limiting the spread, right? It's always been about limiting the spread. Giving the vaccine to someone in a community that has a low infection rate isn't going to impact the spread the same way if a person from a hot spot, a high infection area, gets the vaccine. So as the scientific and medical community rush to create a safe and effective vaccine, there's a bit of an elephant in the room. According to Pew Research, about 27% of Americans say they wouldn't get a vaccine if it was available today. Other polls have shown that up to half of Americans say they're thinking about not getting vaccinated. Now, of course, it's your body, it's your choice, as they say. But the real problem here may be the spread of bad information. And that includes, of course, on social media. That's where it proliferates. So our producer, Dominic Anthony Walsh, recently found himself in one of those Facebook vaccine discussions that can quickly turn ugly. So let's talk about it. Dominic? Bonnie. Have you been getting into arguments on the internet? Yes, which which I promise I normally don't do. <laughs> it happens to the best of us. So so tell me what happened. <sighs> so an old friend of mine posted that vaccines aren't safe and that nutrition is a way to achieve immunity. And so I messaged him directly and the conversation got heated. So did you uh, change any hearts and minds in this discussion? No. And I, I may have sent a gif of a person wearing a tinfoil hat. Oh, Dominic, that is not the way to win friends and influence people. Yes, I know. I know. I feel bad. Um, and so I, I actually messaged him again recently and I met up with him. His name is Judson Wade Fry. Alrighty, let's see where he's at. I think he sent me a Facebook message saying he's already here. I wanted to kind of clear the air after our disagreement, but mostly I wanted to understand, you know, why he believes what he believes. Because I didn't even really ask that while we were arguing. I was too busy telling him he's wrong. Hey, how's it going? Good, dude. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. Right on. Nice tree. Yeah, dude. Good vibes. So I wanted to talk about that kind of tense Facebook conversation we had. I kind of came at you sideways at one point after you posted something about vaccines. Um, do, you, do you have conversations like that on Facebook pretty often? 
They happen. Um, you know, and, and it, it, it kind of just comes with uh, having a social network where we can, you know, share ideas. Um. So <laughs> in terms of like when you arrived at kind of the the belief that we need to focus more on immune health and like living certain types of lifestyles. I'm, I'm curious like how you got to that point in your own life. Well, pharmaceuticals weren't working for me. Um, and it wasn't until I visited a mental hospital. That was my first rock bottom experience. Never really gone lower than that. It branched into just learning about nutrition, teaching myself about nutrition. Um, and then from there, I stumbled uh, on some, you know, some heavy vegan, some might call propaganda showing, man, just not, not in the right vibe. <laughs> um, everything kind of revolves around how we grow and process our food. It's clearly something you thought about a lot that you have put a lot of thought into. So, for example, let's go back to the incident where I sent you that Facebook message. It was basically just a circular conversation where I ended up making quite a bit of fun of you. When when stuff like that happens, I mean, what what does it cause you to think or feel? What 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 effect does that have? And so initially, yeah, I did feel somewhat annoyed and but the 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 majority of the feeling was this helplessness. I feel just this initial longing for someone to actually get where I'm coming from enough to 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 know why I have these concerns. Got you. Well, uh, thanks again, and also sorry for coming at you so hard on Facebook. Bro, uh, I'm I I totally forgot about it until you messaged me the other day, and it's it's. Just keep moving. Um, oh, that ended well. Like if you spend any time on social media these days, you know how rare and valuable that is. Everybody on Facebook and the other social media sites seems to have sort of picked a side. And when disagreement happens, they just double down. And seriously, it's like a cage match or Mortal Kombat there. Dominic, I'm so glad you two talked it out. Yeah, uh, we disagree on a lot, but I think I understand him more now. And I definitely still feel bad about coming at him sideways on Facebook. I think a lot of people do. And since these conversations aren't going away anytime soon, if we're going to you know, be having them, it seems like we should at least try to figure out how to have them like reasonable, rational adults. No one wants to have to block their aunt or uncle. That makes Thanksgiving very uncomfortable. So is there a better way to approach someone you think might be sharing misinformation? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're going to have a chunk of population that says, what what the hell is this? I don't want to take something that was produced by Operation Warp Speed and uh, where the makers of it, uh, you know, were able to dump their stock and make $30 million the day they sent out a fake press release. I mean, no, no you know, uh, that that's a very reasonable response. That's Dr. Peter Hotez. He's a professor of pediatrics and molecular biology at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, where he co-directs the Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development. He is an expert on the anti-vaccination movement. So he says the most popular and obviously scary to parents claim is that vaccines cause autism. I'm sure you've heard that. Hotez wrote a book about this subject. 
because I'm a vaccine scientist, a pediatrician, pediatric scientist, and working developing vaccines. But I have a daughter with autism, and I wrote this book articulating why vaccines don't cause autism based on massive amounts of uh, scientific evidence and studies, but also the lack of plausibility because we've learned so much about autism and how it begins in early fetal brain development. Dr. Hotez has spent his career developing vaccines for people who live in poverty, communities ignored by the pharmaceutical industry, which focuses on high demand, profitable vaccines. And that focus fuels some of the fears around vaccines. Hotez says the race to develop a COVID-19 vaccine has intensified anti-vaxxer concerns. But the other things that the anti-vaccine groups allege is they claim that vaccines are rushed, they're not adequately tested for safety, and then, you know, this, the COVID-19 vaccine program begins in the U.S., and they, uh, I don't know what these guys were thinking in the White House, but they give it the name Operation Warp Speed, which, you know, for the anti-vaccine people, this like feeds right into everything they've been saying. So for those who'd rather forego a vaccine, what is the alternative? Well, that would be to let the virus just sort of burn through the population unchecked until we achieve natural herd immunity. Now, on the surface, that sounds like an interesting idea. Just throw away our masks, start congregating again in large groups, no physical distancing, hugging again, going to concerts, going to parties, just going over to your friend's house, going to see grandma. Just just go back to living life like it was New Year's Eve 2019. Remember that? I get the allure. I miss all of those things, too. You know, back in March, even President Trump admitted he'd considered it. I mean, we had a lot of people were saying maybe we shouldn't do anything. Just ride it. They say ride it like a cowboy. Just ride it. Ride that sucker right through. So before I tell you why it was a terrible idea then, and it's a terrible idea now, I guess I should tell you what herd immunity, often called community immunity, is. Or actually, I'll let Dr. Joanne Turner, the vaccine scientist we talked to earlier from Texas Biomed, tell you. Wait first, do you hear that? That's a herd of zombies coming for us and everyone we love. So if there's a zombie apocalypse and we haven't heard about it yet, then obviously all of us could get eaten by a zombie, right? And that's the pandemic beginning. When no one has any natural immunity to a novel virus and there is no vaccine to trick our immune systems into creating immunity, we're all vulnerable. The zombies could just get us and finish us off. But over time, according to all the zombie shows and movies I've seen, and it is a preferred genre, you learn how to protect yourself and your loved ones from the zombie hordes. But once you know there are zombies out there, you would put a big fence up around your house or your community to stop them, right? And then nobody is getting eaten by a zombie. So that fence is your community's immunity. And if that fence is strong and tall, everyone behind it, even those who can't defend themselves from an undead onslaught, like the little babies and the older folks and those who maybe can't fight or run very well, they're all protected. They share in the community's immunity. But one hole in that fence, which is that one person that didn't vaccinate, 
your zombies coming in and then you're going to get eaten by a zombie. Right. I saw that episode of The Walking Dead and I did not like it. So vaccines, they can give a population herd immunity. You know what? Let's just call it community immunity from here on out. So vaccines, if enough people get them, and for this disease that's estimated to be between 60 and 85% of the population, vaccines can protect even those who can't get vaccinated, whether because they're too young or they have compromised immune systems because they have a disease like cancer or type 1 diabetes or HIV. That's community immunity. Some Americans are convinced this is the way to go. So many that proud fellow Texan Matthew McConaughey, all right, all right, all right, asked Dr. Anthony Fauci about it during a live discussion on Instagram last week. Dr. Fauci said what I said a few minutes ago. Remember what I said? It's a terrible idea. If everyone contracted it, even with the relatively high percentage of people who are without symptoms, Matthew, a lot of people are going to die with our epidemic of obesity, as it were, mm-hmm. with the number of people with hypertension, with the number of people with diabetes. If everyone got infected, the death toll would be enormous and totally unacceptable. And that's the reason why we are against saying, let it fly, let everybody get infected yeah. and we'll be fine. That's a bad idea. Okay, now you're going to make me do math, aren't you? All right, so if it takes between 60 to 85% of the population to be immune to achieve community immunity, and if there are around 330 million people in the United States, let's go with 70%. What's 70% of the U.S. population? 231 million Americans would have to be infected with a virus to achieve community immunity. Now, if around 2% of everyone infected with this virus dies, and we won't know the real percentage for a while, but that's right in the middle of the guesstimates right now, that means more than 4 million Americans will have died to achieve that immunity. Even if it's just 1%, that's more than 2.3 million. It's a terrible idea. That is no way to achieve community immunity, which might not even be achieved after all of those deaths. That's why the race for a vaccine is so important and why, if we have good evidence that it is safe and effective, as many of us as possible should get it. If somewhere between 60 and 85% of us don't get one when it's available, there's no community immunity. There's a hole in our fence. And the zombies can, and will, get through. So when my daughter was born 15 years ago, I joined a parenting message board. And that's the first time I learned that vaccines had at some point become controversial. When I was a kid, you just got them. It wasn't even a question. My dad was a child when the polio outbreaks were still happening, and he clearly remembered the fear, terror really, associated with these epidemics. He also remembered the relief that came along with the development of a polio vaccine. Now, to people of his generation and my mom's, vaccines were only known for preventing horrible diseases. They meant their children might not suffer terrible illnesses, lifelong complications, or death. Several severe childhood illnesses were now preventable. With just a shot, 
So vaccines felt kind of like a miracle to them, I think. So there was no question. My three siblings and I and every single child I knew all had our shots. But somehow, by the time I had a baby, vaccines had become a hot topic. And I remember thinking, huh, maybe vaccines are dangerous. Maybe I should skip them? Maybe do a delayed schedule? Those are a lot of shots for a little baby. So I did what I do. I talked to a lot of experts, and that's something not a lot of parents can do. They don't have access to experts like I do. Uh, I did a lot of reading, too. And uh, ultimately, my child is fully vaccinated. Still, I get it. I get the concern. When you have to make decisions for another small human and for yourself that you think could have grave consequences, even if the chances are infinitesimal, you might hold off, right? And the idea of putting anything in my daughter's body that's been made at warp speed, well, it does give me pause. Of course it does. But right now, several vaccines are in phase three trials, like the one Maria told you about. But those are huge studies in humans to confirm that a treatment or a vaccine is safe and effective in a cross-section of the population. And those are the questions these studies will answer about the vaccine. Is it safe? Does it work? Because all of us want this pandemic to be over, but not at further risk to our health or that of our children. None of us wants to get a vaccine that doesn't work or worse, makes us sick. But, but please don't dismiss any vaccine that comes to the market at warp speed just because it was developed quickly. The reason this is even possible is because the government and other sources have ponied up piles of money to make this happen. And practically every scientist in America is laser focused on this one goal to create a safe, effective vaccine to end this pandemic, to end the suffering, to end the death, and to get us all back to our lives safely. This episode of Petri Dish was produced by Maria Mendez, Lucy Wong, and Dominic Anthony Walsh, with an additional contribution from Ben Henry. Our sound designer is Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Cabarena. Our news director is Dan Katz. This podcast is a production of Texas Public Radio. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon. <laughs>